Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown, and this episode of The Breakdown is a little unique for a couple of reasons. The first reason is we're actually doing this episode as a bit of a follow-up to our last episode, because that episode uh, kicked off a little bit of conversation and perhaps even a little bit of controversy. So in order to get a little bit of a better context on the a lot of the different subjects that were brought up in that episode, and the episode I'm referring to is, of course, our interview with uh, president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, John Carpe, uh, in order to get a little bit of better context and perhaps reframe some of the information in Let's Go a more accurate manner. Uh, we're very excited to have our next guest to the show, but that's not the only reason why this episode is a little bit special. <laughs> Excuse me. The guest that we have on today's show is making his third appearance on The Breakdown, and as such, becomes the holder of the title of the person who's been on The Breakdown the most as a guest. Whether or not that's a good title or not, we'll leave it up to him. But we're very excited to welcome David Kahn back to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Nate. That's, uh, is, that, is, that, is that a dubious title or, uh, or a, a title of distinction? We'll have to, we'll I think have to this week it depends entirely on who you ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but before we get started, I just want to say thank you very much for being willing to, to, to come on the show and have this conversation. Because I think that... Uh, having these nuanced conversations that, that have some context and have some accurate information is, is one of the things that's, that's largely missing in our political conversations that we see happening, whether it's in person or on social media across the board. So, so thank you very much for being willing to do this. So to start with, before I get into the specific questions that I have, what was your sort of broad strokes takeaway of the conversation that I had with Mr. John Carpe? Well, I was uh, surprisingly impressed with uh, his uh, smooth uh, talking uh, persona, and um, I think he was a, a very good speaker, and uh, you know, and made some some good points as far as they as they went. Uh, you know, gen some generally good points that uh, we we need the courts to uh, to uh, defend and uphold our rights, and they're there to hold the government to account, and that's what the charter is there to do too, and. And it's an important role of lawyers from all backgrounds to defend uh, uh, anyone who's charged uh, under laws and, and or and, and or to challenge laws that may be unconstitutional. Uh, depending and 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 that uh, and, and that should be pursued from all angles and and everyone should have should have that right. So I was, you know, at my, the the my the, the uh, my, with my my lawyer hat on and and my uh, uh, passion for. Uh, uh, for upholding the rule of law and for uh, protecting our charter uh, of rights and freedoms for all Canadians, I, I was impressed with sort of the some of his general general takes and and I was even surprised at the outset how he described the Constitutional Center for uh, uh, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms in a very similar way that uh, we uh, that we uh, 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 describe uh, eco justice where I work now. Um, I think there's some uh, some huge differences in terms of track record and and how we use the law and. But he certainly got, um, he's certainly well-spoken and has uh, a good way of, uh, of describing things and, and his activities in a good light. I, I, I don't think there's any argument that he's a, he's a compelling figure. I mean, if, if he wasn't, he wouldn't be where he, he is today and be occupying the, the place in the political conversation that he does. Um, what was your take on his sort of broad legal arguments uh, in regards to the the COVID restrictions? Well, I think he likes, he's, he's, he's framing everything as, as government overreach. And, and I think it's all based in, uh, in a real uh, uh, deliberate misunderstanding of, of the science of, of COVID and the uh, public health measures that we understand and, 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 and the science of, of, of public health and, and the science of, of virology and immunology. So I think it's all rooted in a, in a uh, in a in a downplaying of of the COVID pandemic and uh, and the downplaying of the uh, government action that's required to keep Canadians and Albertans safe. Uh, so it all really stems from that. And and it, so if you take all of that at at face value, then uh, you might be convinced by his arguments that this is some huge government overreach and, and a massive infringement of our rights and freedoms and. And uh, and this is a government running rampant and even uh, verging into fascism. If you were to take his arguments uh, 
that far, but you know what I what I think is fundamentally the, the problem with his uh, with his whole worldview really is <clears throat> this view that um, that individual rights trump um, collective safety and 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 uh, public responsibility and the public good, and that balance is found within the charter, which we can we can discuss further. But we have to balance individual rights with with the collective good, and 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 governments aren't going to make. Uh, perfect decisions and uh, science is going to evolve, especially with a, a global pandemic, the likes of which we've never faced in in the modern era with modern uh, health uh, and, and technology and science. So, um, you know, so I, I think it, it it could be a compelling argument if you you put aside all, all the science and and uh, and the great strides we've made in understanding uh, viruses and pandemics. Okay. The, the, the massive conspiracy argument has always, always sort of been fascinating to me uh, because having been involved in a number of large organizations myself and, and even using the current government of Alberta as an example, it, it seems like more days than not, uh, they have a harder time just finding their shoes to put them on in the morning uh, and go about their days. The idea that this, this would be part of some sort of gigantic international global conspiracy uh, I think is, is is grossly overestimating the capacity of the players that we're we're talking about. Um, what what was one of the big pieces, and you talked about it a little bit there, is is the whole question of how the charter works. And to to his credit, Mr. Carpe did acknowledge that uh, Section One of the Charter overrides or has the potential to override all of the other things. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was an, an, an override in the same way that uh, the notwithstanding clause can be used to override some parts of the charter by governments. It's a it's a balancing. It, it, section one is, uh, is 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 a section that balances those uh, those individual rights with the need for for collective uh, uh, government action, really, to to keep people safe or, or to uh, address a, a pressing and substantial um, uh, government uh, goal. So. You know, he would he wouldn't be a lawyer worth his salt if he didn't mention Section One. But, um, but I find that uh, people like him and Mr. Kenny has been had been do, had been doing it uh, all through the summer, uh, constantly invoking the Charter of Rights and Freedoms for and and claiming that governments are infringing massively on people's charter rights in in uh, implementing these restrictions on uh, on on move it due to uh, due to the COVID pandemic. So, uh, it's. Uh, he, he did he did acknowledge it but um, I think he's waving around the charter uh, in in partial form and, and mr. as I said mr. Kenny and and, uh, and other politicians have done it too to justify uh, reopening uh, uh, before uh, uh, many public health officials think that it's safe to do so and and to justify that by saying that uh, governments are infringing on on our rights our rights are uh, we have responsibilities as well as rights and uh, and our rights are are uh, have to be balanced with um, with the this communal communal good and with um, uh, pressing uh, government objectives and and there's a built-in test we can talk about that that balance it that the court uses to uh, to analyze a, a section one and, and and balance that. What is what is that test? It's called the Oaks test. So it comes from uh, 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 not surprisingly a, a, a case called uh, that it involved uh, the name Oaks. So um, and and. Uh, I can uh, sort of read this the section from the decision that uh, that, that created this test. Uh, first off, the the objective um, to be served by the measures limiting a charter right must be sufficiently important to warrant overriding a constitutionally protected right or freedom. So that's the the important or the, the pressing government objective. And secondly, uh, the party, usually the government, invoking section one must show that the means are reasonable. And demonstrably justified and and propor proportional, um, and the proportionality test involves three components or subtests. First of all, the measures have to be fair and not arbitrary. So uh, the government can't just, as you talked with with Mr. Carpe, can't just say you've got red hair. You're going to the uh, uh, the the uh, 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 the COVID hotel, whatever we're calling it. Um, you've got you're wearing a blue suit. You you get to uh, go home. It's got to be uh, fair and not arbitrary. It has to be carefully designed to achieve the objective in question and rationally connected to that objective. So, 
it, it, there, there has to be a connection with the objective. Um, it should impair the right in question as little as, as possible. And I want to flag this because Mr. Kenny was constantly in the summer saying we have to impair the right, minimal, minimally impair the right, i.e. do the very bare minimum to, uh, uh, in this context, in terms of, of uh, fighting the COVID pandemic, do the bare minimum and impair uh, our, our, our charter rights at the, the very minimum possible. That's not what the test is about. It means if there's two, if there's several different ways of achieving that government objective, the 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 route or the or the measure that's that least impairs the right uh, should be taken. But it doesn't mean you have to uh, impair the right the, the least possible by doing basically the least uh, the the least that you can. Um, and then lastly, there's a proportionality. So there has to be a proportionality between the the, the law that's. Uh, that's uh, that has a, a valid government objective and the deleterious effects on on citizens and the impairment of their rights so there has to be a balancing there and it has it has to be proportional so for example you can't uh, government couldn't say for example um, we want to we want to stop car accidents so we're going to outlaw driving uh, completely that wouldn't be uh, proportional um, it probably wouldn't be fair um, and it, it certainly wouldn't impair your, your, your uh, right of free movement. Uh, there's not really a right to drive, but your right to free movement as little as possible. So that's sort of the legalese to get that, get that out, out at the outset. Okay. Um, one of the things that, that struck me with a conversation with Mr. Carpe was it seemed like to me, and this is where I, I, I'm super curious to know whether or not my perspective is completely out of line here, but it seemed like to me he would present uh, an argument. And if, if I responded, kind, I, I did not have the, the technical savvy that you just demonstrated there, but he initially said, well, we have to protect our charter rights and freedoms. And I said, well, what about section one? Doesn't that kind of give the government the ability to do these things when needed? And he said, well, sure, but I don't know if I believe the science. And so it seems like it fundamentally comes down to there is a disbelief in the, the science and the evidence. And that's what's underlying everything. And in order to try to avoid talking about that part, we're going to talk about all this other legal stuff that that is a little bit more abstract and sounds much more severe because if you say to someone uh at a i don't know an anti-mask rally or something and if you say i don't believe the scientists there's probably going to be some people that go yeah they are part of big science um but if you say our charter rights are being violated that carries much more gravitas i think um and it ignores the, the fundamental points of why that belief exists. And I think we saw that in the conversation when he talked about the, the I asked about the, the, the COVID hotels uh, and he said, well, that's arbitrarily being detained. And I'm like, well, if, they're, if they haven't followed the rules, it's not really arbitrary. Well, I don't believe in the PCR test. <laughs> um, what was, am I completely off to base there? Or is that, what do you think? No, I mean, it's, uh... First off, uh, it, it takes a special kind of hubris, I think, to uh, to be a lawyer and claim that you know more than uh, all the public health officials and scientists and and uh, and everyone working on this problem with PhDs and above. Uh, so, um, and and to circle back, I mean, when you say your charter rights are violated, that's that's kind of a, a, a misstatement. Your charter rights are violated if your charter rights are impaired and the court finds that they're not justified pursuant to section one. So your, your, your charter rights aren't just objectively violated uh, uh, without any analysis of, of, of how that law is being implemented or, or what that law does. You have to go through that analysis. And then at the end, if the court finds that, that the law isn't uh, justified by uh, the section one analysis, the Oaks test, then your, your rights are being violated. But until that such time that that's decided, your rights are are not are, aren't just automatically being violated because your uh, one of those rights is is uh, you know uh, uh, objectively being impaired without looking at the context. So yeah, and 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 you your rights aren't uh, your your right to uh, 
to free free movement, your right to, to free expression. These aren't rights that exist in a vacuum and they're not rights that are uh, that uh, give you uh, the right to do anything you want. They, uh, the, the, the government and, and society has the, the, the right and the duty to impose limits where necessary for uh, to achieve a, a, a government objective and, and to uh, and for the common good. So uh, that has to be looked at. And certainly Mr. Carpe is right. The charter does have a right to enter and leave Canada, but uh, that right is subject to uh, government laws and restrictions for uh, safety and security that, are, uh, that can be justified. And that's exactly what is happening with uh, these travelers who choose, uh, now no, non-essential travelers, uh, as I understand are exempt from these uh, from these uh, uh, COVID uh, uh, restrictions or rules, for example, uh, truckers and uh, air flight crews. And, but if individuals are choosing to, to travel for non-essential purposes, which they really shouldn't be doing due to government guidance, but if they're still cho uh, choosing to do that, they're choosing to travel during a pandemic and they have to uh, uh, abide by government rules and restrictions. And if, uh, if that means that they can't get a PCR test before returning to Canada, then they have to go to uh, the, the Hilton uh, airport suites for up to three days. And uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm horrified by people comparing this to, to being imprisoned or arbitrarily de detained. I, 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 I said the other day on Twitter and maybe uh, one of my uh, uh, inopportune uh, or uh, 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 angry tweets that, uh, you know, People should spend some time with the two Michaels in China, or in uh, in Evan Prison in in Tehran, or uh, in Guantanamo, and then uh, come back, or even Edmonton Remand, and and then come back and talk to us about being arbitrarily de detained in uh, in the West, and because they they went on a uh, vacation to Mexico and didn't get their test, and we want to we want to keep other Albertans safe from the virus that they may be coming, bringing back, including these variants that are really, really concerning and are spreading, it appears by air conditioning and, and in air and very quick uh, in elevators. And so there's some real, real pressing concerns as to why the government is further restricting uh, travel and ensuring travelers are not bringing the virus back. Yeah. To me, the way that I've, I've, I've always kind of looked at the whole, uh, requirements around the the covid tests is if i if i want to to travel on a plane i i have to demonstrate that i'm not carrying a gun uh i have to demonstrate that i'm not carrying a weapon or i'm not allowed to travel uh and i think that that asking people to demonstrate that they're not bringing back uh covid is in the very much the same vein uh, and if, if people are unwilling to do that uh, or unable to do that because of the destination they went to or what have you, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, before we let you back in Canada, we'd like to do a search, please. Um, it, to me, there's, 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 there's really no difference. Um, so that it's, it's fascinating. You can argue that violates a charter right, but is that uh, uh, justified by Section 1? You, you know, I think Mr. Carpe would agree that we don't want people traveling with weapons or bombs on flights or coming into Canada with legal weapons. Or... Yeah. Um, and it's interesting you talk about the, the, the perception piece of it, because one of the, the ways that I've, I've, I've been looking at the whole COVID situation is like a washed out bridge. So there's, there's, you, there's a bridge washed out down the road. Um, it's, it's currently covered in water. That's what the traffic uh, police are saying. Uh, and they've, they've put up a roadblock saying, sorry, guys, the bridge isn't safe right now. You can't travel. Uh, and I think that most objective people would look at that and go, oh, he's the travel cop. He's saying the bridge isn't safe. We shouldn't travel. We shouldn't travel. But I think the problem that we're running into in a lot of ways is that there's, there's some people who are saying, well, I don't believe in floods. Uh, and they want to go travel. And the, the challenge of it is, I think, for, for governments, and I certainly don't agree with everything that the Alberta government has done, but I think the challenge that, that is that if you let those people go ahead and still use that bridge while it's washed out, you're going to create a lot more problems for a lot more people. Uh, do you think that's a fair metaphor? Yeah, that's, that's the, um, the tension between libertarianism and, and sort of... Uh, you know, collectivism or the common good is that uh, at some point you can be exercising your your rights as a libertarian to do X, Y, or Z, but you can be 
hurting other people in the process. And that's really where, uh, you know, that's really what underlies that, that need for a section one justification analysis uh, when, when examining uh, government action and whether it's, it's, it's infringing on people's rights. Uh, everyone's, we, we don't live in a vacuum. Everyone's actions impinge on everyone else's lives. And so if you insist on, on, uh, on a limitless exercise of a certain right, you're gonna be in, infringing on someone else and, and there's gotta be a balance there. I think not to get off on a tangent, but I think the bigger picture and the real failure of governments uh, during this COVID crisis, and I hope it's something that we learn, is that there's not enough transparency about uh, public uh, policy and health uh, policy and, and the science behind COVID and pandemics. And, and, uh, and my friend, Haikik Farani, uh, the doctor of uh, uh, public health, uh, and, and some of his colleagues have, have called for a kind of observatory. You might have, I've only heard of this word in like the context of Syria, where there's a, a Syrian observatory of human rights, and it's like an independent organization that looks for violations of human rights and, and publicizes that kind of thing in, in a sort of independent nonpartisan fashion. Similarly, if we had an, a, a public observatory that examined the science and the public health and, and was totally transparent with Albertans about uh, the, the current knowledge and the trends and, and what we understand about the pandemic, and then what measures we're taking to address those problems and why and how, rather than we've got Dina Hinshaw, who's supposed to be advising the government, but, uh, and she's got a whole team behind her. But uh, in, in the end, uh, Mr. Kenny and his COVID cabinet committee make decisions, and then they uh, pretend, depending on how the decisions go, that they were their decisions or, or they blame her, and she's not able to speak out uh, independently. And so we've got a, a public that's losing trust in the government and how they're making these decisions, because uh, even things that she says can be uh, in, in internally inconsistent because she's, she's uh, you know, trying to toe this line between what she knows is the science and the, and the public good and what cabinet wants to do. And she, her view of her role is to not contradict them. So sometimes she says things that don't even make a lot of sense to ordinary Albertans, then we lose trust. So I think Mr. Carpe and, and, and people in his movement are, are preying on this uh, mistrust of government and this lack of transparency. No, it's interesting that you bring up the trust piece because I think that that's uh, key in a lot of ways for, for why support for public health measures seems to be eroding somewhat. Uh, because, I mean, not only to deal with the inconsistencies of, of the, the government decisions and, and Dr. Henshaw's recommendations and the, 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 the fact that there's been publicly made known that there's been some friction, let's say, between the two, um, but we've also seen some behavior from this provincial government that is in direct contrast to the messaging that they've been providing, whether or not we're talking about the, the multiple MLAs and staffers who decided to go on vacation over, over the holidays while they were telling everybody else to stay home, or we're talking about the fact that just recently two of the government's MLAs publicly joined an organization denouncing public health restrictions. Uh, so the, the trust piece is, is, I think, critically key in all of this. Um, what was your what was your thoughts on Mr. Carpe? One of the things that struck me about a lot of his things was the words that he chose to use and the way that he chose to use them. In, in particular, he had a, a, a very a dedication to referring to lockdown measures as an experiment, um, which to me is, is is somewhat inflammatory language. Uh, what was your take on that? Yeah, well, again, his his entire worldview seems to be rooted in in a misunderstanding of, uh, of, of science and public health measures and, and, and a purposeful misunderstanding and, and, and uh, undermining of them. And, uh, you know, he went on at, at length about uh, how uh, quarantine measures were, were, uh, invent were discovered by various societies and we should be just quarantining old people. And, and that's a tried and true measure, measure. And we've never, ever tried, uh, you know, lockdowns or, or, or wider societal restrictions to deal with a global pandemic. But we've never dealt with this kind of a global pandemic in the modern world with our understanding of virology and immunology and how uh, pandemics spread. And, uh, and, and uh, we have different technologies like uh, the COVID alert app, which we should be using here in Alberta and, and, and all sorts of uh, much better understanding of how we can combat uh, 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 a pandemic and spread of a virus. And 
So it's, it's really disingenuous of him to say that this is some big experiment. This is built on many decades of, 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 of research uh, by uh, scientists and, and public uh, health officials. Uh, but this is the, the, really the first time that we've had to implement these, um, these practices in such a, 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 a wide global scale. But that's not to, to say that it's just some experiment that we're flying by the seat of our pants that we've just made this up on the back of a napkin. And uh, as you said, a global conspiracy has rolled it out across the whole country, or the whole world to, I don't know, hobble the West or uh, you know, some other nefarious evil uh, conspiracy. What was, uh, the, one of the other things that, that, that struck me as very dissonant is the word I'll use was his talk about how we need to reopen, but we also need to protect the vulnerable. But while we're protecting the vulnerable, we also need families, we need to be allowing families to, to be visiting nursing homes more because they provide important supports and can notice changes in, in skin tone. Um, that, that struck me as very strange because if you're gonna argue, well, we need to protect the, the, the vulnerable people, I don't know how you go from there to uh, also we need to make sure that we expose them to as many people as, as, as possible. Did, did you take a different read on that or? Well, I think you've raised a really great point. And I think that belies his, his real um, deliberate uh, misunderstanding of the virus and how it works and his, his commitment to downplay uh, this pandemic. And, and that is reflected in his in his views that we should just uh, somehow protect and only uh, keep everything open, but just somehow protect the elderly, but continue to have them uh, have visits from the wider public that will be presumably even less protected from spread of the virus and there will be more virus out there. So I think it really, uh, it really belies his, his, uh, um, his downplaying of, of the seriousness of, of the virus and the pandemic. Uh, but I do wanna say that, uh, I agree with his comments that we've really failed our uh, elderly people in protecting them. This is a massive uh, failure, uh, especially in Canada and certain other countries. And we should be uh, ashamed and horrified with uh, how we've let this spread and how many uh, older people have died um, due to our, our cutting costs and, and privatizing of uh, long-term care homes and, and improper, uh, not enough regulation and oversight. And certainly, yeah, family members do, do provide that important um, um, uh, o personal oversight over their family members when they're visiting them. And that's, that also be, has become a, a, a real problem, but uh, it, it's not gonna be solved by uh, just opening up society, letting the, the virus spread rampant, all the deleterious effects it, it'll have on, on, on uh, younger people, but also how it'll just, it will simply spread into long-term care homes because you can't ring fence those off. People are still going in and out. Workers are still going in and out. That's just not, not uh, a credible uh, uh, solution well, and I think as far as I understand. Yeah. And I think the challenge with saying we're going to, we're going to somehow segregate the, the vulnerable and the elderly population is that it requires on people's ability to, without fail, follow the rules. And referring back to the COVID hotels, we know there are people who have problems with that. And that's not to say that they're bad people. It's just to say that... that they need some direction. No, yeah, there's no such thing as a perfect system. And because of that, we have to, I think, acknowledge that when we're building these 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 plans and these these pathways. Um, yeah, I mean, he said, he said, he said that there wasn't evidence that people weren't properly quarantining at home, but we don't have the kind of resources to be checking in at everyone every single part of the day or issuing them uh, uh, ankle bracelets or something so that they can go home and quarantine. And we know that they're complying with the rules. So sometimes a, a, little, a little bit of a blunter uh, uh, approach in an emergency is required. And the government has decided that we just, because of these variants and this international travel that's still happening, we've got to do more to protect uh, the spread into Canada from from outside and 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 and, a, and the government will say a justifiable measure is to have people uh, who can't provide that that those uh, clear tests to to uh, to quarantine in in a hotel in a, in a restricted environment for three days until they get that that test back. 
One of his justifications for people uh, deliberately defying uh, the health orders in order to exercise their chartered rights was the idea that health orders on a legal hierarchy um, are lesser than the, the, the charter. Uh, so that if you have a charter right to go assemble, freely assemble in a park, that supersedes any sort of health legislation or health orders because the charter's bigger. I'm probably oversimplifying a little bit, but tell me what your thoughts on that argument are. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I agree with him. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms is, is part of the Constitution of Canada. It's the highest law of the land. It's what governs all of the other uh, laws and, and legislatures uh, and, and parliament. Uh, and, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, I agree with him uh, to, to that extent. But just because a public health order uh, uh, it may infringe on a, a charter right doesn't mean it's superseding the charter. Again, this kind of goes back to his argument that anytime a law or a, or a government measure infringes on a right, it's superseding the charter of rights and, and, and is, is somehow overriding the charter. Again, we have to have that analysis that's built into the charter, section one, the Oaks test, whether or not that can be justified in a free and democratic society. Uh, we go through that, uh, courts go through that test and they uh, look at the evidence and they decide uh, if it's fair and if it's proportional and, and, and impairs as, as minimally as possible the right, if there's a better way of doing it. Uh, but it, it, it doesn't mean that the public health order is overriding the charter. I mean, that's just uh, kind of uh, very facile and uh, um, very uh, kind of a, a, ch a childish view, really. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um... One of the, the fascinating things that has come out of the, the conversation that this episode prompted, uh, and, and there were quite a few, uh, is the idea that Mr. Carpe is not an idiot, um, so why is he doing these, these things that on their face, I think most rational people who are not approaching it from a deeply emotional place can say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, the, the, the restrictions that are in place do meet the, the Oaks test. They are for the greater good. Uh, and there's been quite a bit of, of speculation as to, to what his, his motivations are. Um, given that we already have had a court case where the, the courts, and please correct me if I'm getting this wrong, where, where a court in Calgary said, yeah, there's a conversation that we need to have about whether or not these measures are uh, overly harsh, but to set them aside would cause greater harm than to not set them aside. It seems like the courts are already making a, a pretty clear, they're marking out a bit of a path into what direction this thing's going to go from a legal standpoint. So if, if those directions are, are largely set and read, not only from new rulings, but previous rulings, the, the Oaks test, all of these things seem to say, no, it's okay what, what's being done. Perhaps it's not being executed well, but it's okay what's being done. What do you think that the end game is here? Well, I think he's motivated by his, <clears throat> seems to be deep-seated uh, libertarian views and, and su su suspicion of government and and what he would probably describe as large government or big government and, and government intrusion on your personal uh, space. And so I think he's, he's motivated by that. Yeah, certainly courts uh, uh, look at things and there's tests like the test for injunctions uh, and, and courts balance whether striking down a law or suspending a law would do more harm than good. Uh, and to, to which party will be harmed more by striking it down. So they balance whether, um, whether, whether suspending the, the, the law uh, pending a, a full hearing would do more harm to the government and, and society or more harm to the uh, applicants uh, uh, challenging the law. Interestingly, yesterday, uh, a BC court uh, refused an injunction sought by the BC government against churches there in the Abbotsford area uh, to um, enjoin them from, from attending in church and having church services but, and the, the court went through the analysis and if people don't read 
beyond the headline, they might think the court lost its injunction. But in fact, it, the more complex issue was uh, that, uh, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah. Still there? Yeah. Okay. Wasn't sure. I maybe lost you. Um, the, there's already public health orders that the BC Prosecution Service has declined to enforce. The court basically said, you don't come to the court and, and try to get a court injunction, which may look uh, flashier or may uh, may hold some more weight. You need to go and enforce the laws that are already on the books that that they're already breaching. And I'm not going to issue a, a sort of a super, superfluous injunction, um, given that uh, you're the government and you should be enforcing the laws before coming to the courts and, and asking for an injunction. So just as an aside, that happened uh, yesterday and, and it's a bit complex because the headline is government loses injunction against churches, but that's okay. not really uh, what, happened. what happened. So if, if, if I understand what you just said correctly, um, what ha the, the, the courts effectively said, you guys already have rules to deal with this. Go play with those rules before you go ask for bigger toys. Yeah, I mean, they, the, court, the judge recognized that the BC Prosecution Service had received uh, the charges from uh, recommendation or, or uh, a recommendation of charges to, uh, of the individuals and they decided not to prosecute as uh, independent pros public prosecution, prosecution services do. But uh, the, then the court was like, well, if I issue this injunction and they're charged for breaching the inju injunction and that goes to the BC Prosecution Service, how, uh, how much confidence is there gonna be that they are going to prosecute those charges? And, and does that undermine the, the, whole, um, uh, the whole government approach to, to this? Uh, if if uh, things aren't getting uh, uh, prosecuted and, and, uh, and, and courts have to issue further injunctions. One of the concerns that's been raised has, is the idea that what Mr. Carpe is doing is fundamentally dangerous to the, the fabric of Alberta. And, and let me sort of explain that argument as, as, as I understand it, and then I'd, I'd like to get your take on it. So one of the, the arguments has been, we need to just ignore the John Carpe's of the world. Uh, because he does say some some deeply offensive, uh, some deeply problematic, and I would be comfortable saying at times hateful things. Um, and if we just ignore him, then he's not going to, he'll just go away. And I think that what we're seeing is he's not going away anytime soon. And the the concern that I have is if we don't talk about what John Carpe is doing, the, he's going to keep doing it, and there will be people who are not able to access the information that says, here's why he's wrong. Uh, and if we don't talk about that, then, then we're going to have some, some problems. And it's interesting because I've seen a lot of people use the, the Trump administration and, and the, the debacle that happened towards the end of his, his term uh, with the Capitol uh, and the insurrection there. Uh, saying it, it's by letting these people talk that we get to this place. I'm not sure if that's true, because the way that I sort of perceive it is those people felt that way before Trump. And the problem that the, the U.S. had is they were told for a significant period of time, you're not allowed to think these things. You're a bad person for thinking these things. And there was no conversation about why they thought those things. It was just, you're wrong and you're bad, and that's the end of the story. And if you do anything different, then I'm going to cancel you. Uh, and so those views did not stop being held. They just went underground. And then when a figure like Trump showed up and said, hey, you know what, everybody, you're right. Let's do this. Uh, people ran with it. And the, the concern that, that I personally have is that if we don't have these conversations then and we just say we're going to ignore these people, we're going to drive them underground, then all it takes is that one guy who's willing to, to get the momentum and, and doesn't have the moral compunctions about whether or not they should do it that way. And they can rally those, those groups. And I think we're starting to see a little bit of that with the church up near Edmonton, where the, the JCCF and other organizations are presenting what's happening there in a, to me, what's a profoundly disingenuous way. And people are starting to rally around it. Um, what's, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, 
you know, it's, it's difficult. I, uh, you know, just as an aside, I took the Calgary Herald to task, I think last week for publishing another uh, Daniel Smith op-ed that was full of uh, sort of ludicrous statements and, and, uh, and factual inaccuracies. And, uh, you know, I was a bit upset uh, by that, but, uh, you know, a reporter friend explained to me that she has, uh, she has a, a, a big voice. I mean, maybe because she gets these op-eds, but she's, uh, she's got a line into a, a, a large faction of the conservative movement and maybe the UCP and these are her views and to uh, and, and and so they they need to be aired so that people understand what what those people are thinking and so that they can uh, directly um, deconstruct for themselves uh, these arguments and see how they don't hold water uh, and, and so you know I, I you know I, 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 I there's that tension for me with uh, you know publishing things that are full of inaccuracies versus uh, not publishing them and then not addressing these issues head on uh, and, and, and really dialogue and transparency and, and uh, is, that, is, is, is the best way for society to, to, um, to deal with its, its problems and, and citizens' concerns. So yeah, it's, um, I understand people's, uh, people being really hurt by his statements and, and being angry that he's uh, showing up on your podcast, for example, or elsewhere, but he's, he's a lawyer, he's got uh, an organization with funding, he's got power, he's representing clients in the courts. Uh, but, and he's also, and this is what bothers me though, is he's, he was very uh, smooth talking and reasonable on your show uh, yesterday, but he, uh, I've, I've also um, happened to check out a, a rally in the summer, uh, biked by and they were holding a rally and he was one of the keynote speakers and he was up on on a soapbox in front of city hall in front of maskless uh in front of all you know all maskless uh uh protesters against uh, mask bylaws and, and encouraging them to to uh encouraging them and marching with them and so i think he's uh you know uh has a lot of power and he's gone beyond just the um ideal tireless advocate lawyer who's representing anyone who uh, is entitled to a defense or entitled to challenge a law. I think he's much farther into things than that. And, and there's some uh, uh, possibly some ulterior motives there or, uh, but I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm probably rambling here a bit because I, I just, I, I do, I do see that there's a tension. I do understand why people, uh, you know, don't want him to have uh, further space, but, and, and, and again, this is why I, I was a, a bit angry that uh, Daniel Smith's column full of conspiracy theories and things was published again, but, but I do understand and appreciate the other side that we need to have open dialogue and what is it disinfectant is the best, uh, sunshine, oh, I'm is, getting, the, sunshine is the yeah. best disinfectant. I'm terrible with idioms, but uh, yeah. So um, I, I, I get, I, I understand, uh, both sides, I think, but I think uh, erring on the side of, of, of dialogue and, and um, is, is better. Yeah, and I, the, I think that I would be safe to say that the goal for what we were trying to do is I, I have real problems as well when the, the Daniel Smiths of the world get to, to publish op-eds uh, unchallenged. Uh, and I think that there's... Uh, one of the things that I've heard from a few people since we put the episode up is that Carpe does go on Daniel Smith's show. And when he says things, she just goes, yeah. Uh, and that to me is, is not dialogue. And that to me is, is, is profoundly dangerous. What I would like to see more of, and this is my own personal bias that I'm happy to own. Uh, what I'd like to see more of is if we're going to, we are going to have to interact with these people in some capacity because they are in positions of power, they are in positions of influence, and those positions are only growing. Um, it's important to contextualize this by saying that, that John Carpe was not removed from the UCP uh, for comments that he said, which we'll talk about in just a sec. Um, uh, and to, if, if reasonable people who are willing to challenge those opinions and his sound bites and his smooth talking step back and say, I'm just not going to engage with him, then he gets to say his things unchallenged. 
And that to me is far more dangerous because as much as uh, there are many journalists and there are many media outlets that do strive for objectivity, there are those that have figured out, well, we're just going to build our own media platform. There's, there's one in particular that has a large operation in Alberta, um, a rebellious sort of media organization. Uh, and they've built their own platform that has a staggeringly large reach. And those folks are more than happy to contextualize uh, and to allow these people to speak uh, without challenging them at all. And so I think that, that that challenging them is important to provide not only context for, for people who are consuming that content, but I think it also presents the opportunity for those people to show us who they really are. And that brings us to the, the, the big piece at the end. And I've had a lot of people say that it was uh, the last five minutes that was the most impactful for them. So before I, I do sort of my perception of things, what did you take away from the last five minutes of the episode? Well, you know, uh, as, a, as, as a gay man, I was, um, when I heard his reporting on his original comments, I was really uh, hurt and angry for him, you know, comparing uh, fascist movements uh, uh, or, or, uh, or or communism or fascism uh, authoritarian movements to uh, to the struggle of the LGBTQ2S plus community to uh, over hundreds of years to achieve some semblance of equality and and uh, and dignity and to have uh, uh, so, uh, have our have our rights. Uh, uh, to 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 live in, in uh, fairly and and uh, with dignity in society um, respected. So I was, uh, you know, I, I was I was hurt by that, and and I was hoping that uh, that you you giving him an opportunity to address those and uh, th those comments and get and give that context would uh, uh, provide some. Uh, some uh, further understanding of where he was coming from, but you know, he it really demonstrated a, a, a real lack of remorse in his comments. He, it seemed to me, he was more concerned about the bad uh, international, as he said, media coverage he got and how his words were misinterpreted and taken out of context, rather than, and and it really belied his his I think his deeply personal views that. Uh, that gay rights are are uh, are are toxic, or the LGBTQ2S plus movement is is toxic to libertarianism, or is somehow infringing on, on on other people's rights, and it's a zero sum game. And 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 for him to even put the pride flag in the same sentence as the swastika or the hammer and sickle is deeply abhorrent to me. And 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 the fact that he would just not apologize, straight up apologize, uh, I think he, he, I think he regretted, I think he said he re regretted uh, putting the pride flag in that sense, but he didn't really apologize to the community or understand that the hurt uh, that it caused. So it seemed to me that he was really just more concerned with um, the negative blowback he got personally than than the harm he caused. Um, the LGBTQ2S plus community and the and and the, and the wider Canadian community who who believes in in uh, human rights and equal rights. Yeah, I I to be to be clear, uh, and I said this at the opening of the 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 episode. Um, if Mr. Carpe was sincere in his offer to continue that conversation, I would be happy to continue that conversation. But where he left it. Um, I think that his unwillingness to apologize, again, it seems to me like a lot of his constructs are based on the idea of, I'm going to come up with a technical sounding thing that lends some authority. Uh, and, and what I took from that conversation was, uh, well, it was the media's fault and the media is bad and, 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 and all of that. But if it was purely an issue of the metaphor and if it was purely an issue of well, I just used the rainbow flag as an example because that's the example that I thought of. 
to me, it should have been very, very easy for him to answer the yes to the last question that I asked him, which was, can you substitute in the UCP flag in that metaphor? Because if it doesn't matter what organization it is, if the point of the argument truly was uh, any organization can, can overreach, that should have been a pretty easy yes to me. Uh, the fact that it wasn't, uh, and the fact that he, he very quickly had to leave after that, I think spoke more loudly about what his motivations were, were than anything else. Um, am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty disingenuous of, of him to uh, uh, all of a sudden have seven minutes to get to some appointment. Uh, I, I doubt he made his appointment on time anyway, so I think he could have taken a couple of minutes to to uh, apologize to the LGBTQ2S plus community if he really did uh, uh, feel remorse for 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 lump, lumping us in with 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 Nazis and and Stalin or whatever, um, and you know that's why the charter was created was to protect minorities and uh, from state discrimination and to uphold the equality rights of all Canadians and he uh, uh, espouses a, a real um, respect for the charter but he seems to only use it. Uh, or interpret it in, in ways that support his his worldview. Uh, so that's uh, you know that's that's disappointing. I do want to touch on one thing. We, uh, don't know how much more time we have, but I you know I what as I do agree. What I do agree with is his view that it's very difficult to challenge laws. And you know what's what it reminds me of is is Premier Kenny's Bill One, the uh, ostensibly the. Uh, uh, Defense of Critical Infrastructure Act, I think it's called, and uh, that's the bill that criminalizes protests even on um, uh, sidewalks and in your grandma's back alley. Uh, and we we want to challenge that law, and <clears throat> the AUPE is trying to challenge that law constitutionally. But Alberta government is arguing that uh, that their challenge is moot because no one's been charged under it. So it just sits there like a sort of Damocles over all of Albertans and scares uh, activists and, and uh, just as his uh, public inquiry into anti-Alberta campaigns in the war room, these are all designed to put a chill on, on free speech and on, um, and on, uh, on uh, peaceful activism. But he's, he's right that it's, it can be very difficult to challenge government laws absent a, a charge and then uh, going to the, to the, uh, and then, you know, hiring a lawyer, either judicially reviewing a, a decision like folks are trying to do with the coal policy, which can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, or if you're charged criminally under Bill One or uh, or under a public health order, getting a, a lawyer and having to pay for legal fees to to challenge the constitutionality of that. So I, I so I do agree there that there's an access to justice issue and there's a a balance that needs to be a better balance needs to be found for individuals that want to challenge the constitutionality of of laws or, or, uh, or put uh, constitutional issues into um, at issue in their in, in the defense to a criminal charge. But uh, I had something else I was going uh, for there. But you know, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I do agree with that with that part of it. But I think uh, his motivations are are, uh, are sort of less uh, maybe purer than that, or, or, you know, less coming less from a, a, the point of view that everyone's entitled to a defense and, 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 and law should be challenged and, and, uh, and the courts are there to protect uh, our rights and to uh, protect us from government overreach. There's. Okay. One of the, the, the big things that I want to just sort of take a second to address as well, if I may, um, is, I think a big part of the conversation that we, we need to have is we know where we want to be, but we, I think we have to acknowledge that we're not there yet. Uh, and there's, there's no shortage of, of examples of that sort of thing, uh, whether we're talking about First Nations issues, whether we're talking about generational trauma, whether we're talking about the, the history of, of how LGBTQ2S plus people have been treated in Canada. Uh, we have come a long way, but we're not there yet. And I think that if we try to live like we are, uh, we put ourselves at a very real risk of, of backsliding. 
Uh, and so I want to thank you sincerely uh, for being willing to have this conversation, particularly the, the flag piece, because I have no illusions how hurtful it is uh, that these conversations are still taking place. Uh, yeah, I, have yeah. no, I have no illusions that it's hurtful for people to be exposed to it, um, but it's still there. Uh, and I think that if we don't talk about it, it's 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 just going to stay there. And I think that there will be elements of it that will probably be there for a very long time. But it the the prospect of just ignoring it scares me. Um, so I, I really do sincerely want to thank you for being willing to have this this conversation today because it's a weighty one. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's uh, you know this might seem right now or, or well-trodden path, but the, the theory that uh, the Rust Belt states voted for Trump because of uh, economic anxieties and, and, and uh, feeling marginalized and, and, and left behind, uh, losing their union jobs and, and losing their American way of life. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, and there's a lot of people who, um, who think that, uh, that according uh, equal rights to one group of people, it's a zero-sum game and they're losing their rights. And I think we have to, uh, try to keep dialogue and education uh, at the forefront and uh, and try to lift everyone up and recognize when people are feeling left behind and not just uh, discount their feelings and um, otherwise these things fester and then people are are pitted against each other and people feel that that anytime someone else gets some recognition or or uh, is accorded um, equal right to marry or or uh, or or uh, uh, equal rights in any other sphere that they somehow are losing their rights or their um, perquisites. And and I guess to some degree, there is a rebalancing because certain sectors of society have for hundreds of years uh, had that, uh, that privilege and have had that power. And we want to have a more equal society, a more diverse society where people of color and people from all walks of life, sexual orientations, gender, identities have an equal chance to to get ahead not an uh i don't think and we don't want to uh, i don't believe in a system of communism where everyone ends up at the same place but everyone should have a fair shake and should be able to stand on their merits and get a good education and get ahead regardless of their intrinsic uh, uh qualities and so that's uh you know what i think we should all strive for and that's why dialogue is important and not not um you know uh ironically marginalizing other groups of people who are feeling um, uh, feeling there that uh, they can't put food on the table for their families or they're losing jobs. I think you hit the nail on the head at the beginning of our conversation where you said that there are, are, are some people who are preying on other people's ignorance uh, because I think that that's very real. I think that we see that every day uh, in not only our social conversations but our political conversations. And I think that the way that I view it is those of us who don't buy the ignorance. Uh, we have a responsibility to, to do what we can to try to protect the people that are being preyed upon by the, the predators, regardless of where they sit on the, the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. There's, there's people like uh, Brett Wilson, who I know no better, but uh, his climate denialism tweets just prey on, on um, climate uh, scientific misinformation. And and uh, it's it's very venal and and uh, and cynical of, of of people like him who 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 are smart and successful and have a platform and know know better to to do that for uh, whatever personal uh, or economic financial ends that they have. And it, it shows a real disservice to society. Is there anything else you'd like to add to this conversation? I want to give you just a, a free mic for pick it. If you if you want to go on an, on a, on an eco justice uh, bit, or if you want to talk about I don't know a, a cat uh, or your your favorite animal, uh, the field is yours, sir. Well, I didn't know I'd have free reign to uh, expound on whatever I wanted here. I think it's been a really good conversation we've had, and I've I've learned a lot from listening to your interview with Mr. Carpe and uh, reflecting on that and then our, our discussion today. So, you know, I, I, I really appreciate uh, this opportunity and, um, you know, you put me on the spot. Usually I can talk about anything, but I can't, um, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the Alberta 
public inquiry and we're, we're challenging that and, and we had our hearing last week so you know that's something topical to, to talk about we uh, had a two-day hearing last week uh, where EcoJustice uh, challenged the constitutionality of that inquiry that it was uh, that it was we claim it was created for an improper purpose and that the commissioner is biased and uh, but I think that's a a symptom of um, the larger problem with people like Mr. Kenny coming up with these ideas on the campaign trail uh, and, and all the divisiveness and, 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 and attacking others for their views, but then building that into uh, what, what is ostensibly supposed to be a public inquiry to look into something of public importance in a public and fair and impartial manner. And to, so to, to, to twist the Public Inquiries Act into uh, fulfilling a campaign promise and a predetermined outcome and that is that uh, environmental charities in Canada are somehow controlled by uh, nefarious U.S. conspiracies and, and foundations to, to landlock Alberta energy when billions of dollars of investment come into Canada from, from uh, international investors and markets who also have, have uh, uh, expectations of the industry and, and reducing carbon emissions and things. So, it's just a, a, a really a ridiculous conspiracy theory, um, given the imprimatur of a government inquiry pursuant to the Public Inquiries Act. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm heartened to see that I think Albertans are seeing through uh, the, these kinds of uh, uh, what I like to always call political theater of, of Mr. Kenny and, and, um, and seeing through seeing through these these kinds of tactics and really seeing in a lot of ways that the emperor has no clothes in the way he's handled covid the way he's mishandled the economy his uh his uh gambling on a 95 to 5 odds that the keystone pipeline would be built when it was clear clear to most everyone else it was going to be canceled um, so uh, these things don't uh, help the long-term interest of albertans there's no focus on rebalancing our finances, investing in the future economy. So he's really, uh, in my view, um, more focused on, on himself and his political ends than, than public service and governing for the good of all Albertans and especially for the future of Alberta. So that's my shameless plug and uh, uh, what's on my mind these days as well as uh, everything and anything coal. I think I'm dreaming, sleeping and eating coal. Uh, which isn't very cold, tasty, <laughs> but uh, I'm also really heartened to see the the real um, public awareness and outcry for uh, uh, with respect to um, to Mr. Kenny's plans to uh, create a 19th century coal mining industry in our Rockies. So, so there's lots of good um, positive news and uh, lots of good work um, happening, and but there's tons tons more work to do. So. Thank you awesome. for uh, for having me on and for all you do as well. Well, uh, I just play with puppets, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, but I, I want to say thank you again for being willing to come on the show. Uh, I want to say uh, you're you're the the title holder now, dubious whether or not that is <laughs> uh, for most appeared guest on the breakdown, um, and uh, I would be remiss if I, I didn't ask. Um, you recently stepped down from the leader of the Alberta Liberal Party. You're going to sandbag me with this question now? <laughs> no, no, it's, 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 very, it's very simple. Um, should we expect to see a return to politics from Dave Kahn anytime soon? Politics is a meat grinder, as was described recently, and it's a really tough game. Um, uh, I, I, I worked more than full-time as Alberta Liberal leader for a couple of years with no pay. So it's a really, it's, it's a really difficult uh, uh, personal sacrifice on so many levels and, uh, and, and you can really get burnt out. And I'm, I'm so no, I'm, 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 I, I gave it my best. I, I put in many years in, in politics, but I found a, a great new home at EcoJustice and uh, real resources to, um, to uh, protect the environment and, and combat climate, the climate crisis, which I'm, uh, which I think is our, our uh, number one goal for our children and grandchildren. So I'm really happy to be where I am, and 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 also uh, uh, fighting for my other passion for um, Indigenous rights and 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 for First Nations. So um, I think I'm I'm just moved into a uh, you know a different position, but I have the same passion for Alberta and and 
can tell from my Twitter feed, I'm still engaged on, on the issues and still concerned about good public policy and and uh, and what's best for the future of our province and, and country. But I'll uh, I'll be uh, uh, prosecuting that from a different uh, uh, position. That's fantastic. I I, I want to thank you again for your your service to your province, past, present, and future. Uh, in whatever form it holds. And as, as just a last little footnote for the episode, uh, since you brought up the, the, the First Nations piece, I'm looking forward to seeing the JCCF voice their full support for First Nations people challenging uh, Bill 1, uh, as well as them challenging the intrusions into their unceded lands by blocking railroads because they seem to be using the exact same tactics that he's encouraging his followers to do. And by the way, that's contrary to the constitution, right? And, and he's, uh, he's committed to upholding the rule of law and the primacy of our constitution. So uh, yeah, I'd encourage him to have a look at section 35 and consider to what extent uh, his, uh, his principles extend uh, uh, in a more fulsome way to protecting the whole constitution. I'm, I'm, I'm certain we'll see a statement any day. <laughs> okay. Thank you so Sounds much, good. Nate. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Nate. And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, please consider signing up to be one of our Patreon supporters at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab. And if you're listening to the audio version of our podcast, please consider leaving a rating and review because it's those ratings and reviews that help us get the podcast in front of more people and into more ears. Thank you again for your time.